Job chapter 32, verse 1. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakal the Buzite, of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with his three friends because, he had not, because they had not found a way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he was. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. So Elihu, son of Barakal the Buzite, said, I'm young in years, and you are old. And that is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, advanced years should come before wisdom, should teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in a person, the breath of the Almighty, that gives them understanding. It is not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. I'll tell you what I know. All right, and then he's going to unload. So before we hear some of his words, and you're not, you're not going to like this guy. I'm going to tell you right now uh, that you're not going to like Elihu. You're not going to find what he has to say particularly helpful. Um, I just want to orient us. The last week we talked about Job, where he lost everything, his 10 children, his vast estate, his wealth was, to- was taken from him in, in three very different dramatic acts. Some the evils of, of people, of men, of raiders who came and took. Some of a, a cataclysmic wind that blew and knocked down a building. Um, all because of a, well, we talked about it last week. I'm not going to rehash it. Bad things happen to Job. And the book wrestles with this question. Why is that? How did this, how did this thing happen? Um, what we know, most scholars agree. And when the scholars agree, and they've devoted their life to studying ancient texts and languages and history, I trust them. And what they tell me, not personally, but through their writings, is that Job is the oldest written book of the Bible. When you open the book of Job, you are opening and reading the most ancient, oldest parts of our scripture. Most scholars say that this was written after Abraham, but before Moses. And so God's people have been called and formed, but they have not yet been given through Moses the law. So there's no references to the law. There's no references to, to God's temple, to Israel. It's, this predates all of that. And when you read Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, his three for those of you who are listening on the podcast, I'm using air quotes right now, friends, um, that they reflect a very pagan understanding of God. They don't quote scripture because this is the first scripture ever written. So they don't have anything to draw upon. They're just drawing from an ancient pagan understanding of if something bad's happening, then the gods must be angry, so you need to get that straightened out as quickly as you can. Um, Elihu is different. His Theological assumptions, what he believes, the way he talks about God, even in using the word here, breath, and is very um, Hebrew in understanding of God through, through God's revelation. And it, he's much more nuanced. He, is, he sounds like a Pharisee when you, when you read some of his, his thinking and things, he's, which isn't to say he's right. He's just wrong in ways that feel familiar to me. And, and I, not only do we see them in 
in the mouths of those who oppose Jesus. Uh, we also hear about this day, and if I'm honest before you today, some of the things that, that Elihu will say to Job are things that I've thought and, and, and probably things I've said to people. So this is, he's wrong, but he's wrong in ways that I understand. He's wrong in ways that are very familiar to me. And he's listening. Um, he, I like to picture him. I picture him as having a beard. He has very few particular microbrews that he'll drip, drink from. And he, uh, he was a philosophy major. And, and kind of by his last year of college, he just had some ideas about the, the teachers that they just didn't get it, and he's going to get his PhD, so he's kind of in that zone of like, uh, you know, knows everything, has it all figured out, and, and gets profoundly frustrated and angry when people don't understand and can't see what he can see so clearly. But he is young. He, he's only a PhD candidate. He's, he's not yet gotten to the place where he can speak authoritatively. So he listens, but as he listens, he grows angrier and more agitated, which is, the first question I have is, why does he care? Why would he care if Job repents or not? Job is suffering. He's suffering immeasurably. What, what, if, he's, if he's right, then why does he care? Let, let Job's getting all that he deserves. Why? Are you so angry? And it's that anger I want to talk about today. The anger, where it comes from, why it feels so familiar to us if we're honest, and if we're not honest, why it should feel familiar to you, uh, because I think it's an, angry, it's an anger we all feel. There's this, he's angry on behalf of God, which again, does God need his defenders? There's a I almost quoted you two twice next door. We'll see, we'll, see if, we'll see if we get two quotes today. But here's number one. There's a, there's a line in one of uh, U2's songs when it, uh, Bono sings, stop helping God across the street like he's a little old lady. Like God doesn't need defenders, and those who defend God are the ones who do irreparable damage to people who are suffering uh, in, in the world. I don't think God needs us to defend him. But I'll tell you what. I have tasted the intoxicating elixir of self-righteous indignation. I felt the rush of an anger, an anger that I knew was pure and it was good that I was tapping into. Uh, it's an anger that we now understand is, is actually habit-forming. Uh, those who understand how habit-forming it is um, are CEOs at Meta and TikTok and, and Fox News and CNBC, and they, they understand that self-righteous anger feels really good. And Elihu is high as a kite on that anger right now. He, is, he cannot get enough of this self-righteous indignation. And, and I've, I, I'll tell you, I felt that. I felt the taste of self-righteous zeal. Uh, it's something I, that I regularly need to repent of. So before I read Elihu's words, we've just introduced him. He's about to speak. Before I read, just a, a sampling of some of the, the things he has to say. I want to um, give you the behind the scenes. This is the formula he's working from. Once you understand his two assumptions and his one conclusion, his words will begin to make sense. And it's, it's, a, it's a three principled, fundamental assumptions about the way the universe is. And, um, and it's, it's kind of perfect. It fits all reality inside of it. It's rationally, logically sound. Um, but there's a problem with it, which we'll talk about. So here's assumption number one. God is in direct control 
of everything that happens. This is first assumption. God controls everything. Was it God's will? It was God's will because it happened. Everything that happened, by definition, by the mere fact that it happened, therefore, must have been God's direct will, what he caused. Now, this is tempting to hold on to. It's tempting to say, well, that's a high view of God's sovereignty. I would suggest there's an even higher view of God's sovereignty than God causes everything. We can talk about that later. That's not for today. But a couple of things that I want to talk about. So let me just give you the two extremes, the two, the two extreme ways to understand God's sovereignty and control, and then just suggest there's a lot of space in between. So Elihu's on, on pool number one. Pool number one is God directly controls every single thing that has happened. Everything that has ever been is God's will. So it's neat, clean, tidy, but it also means God killed Job's children. Is that what we learn in chapter one of Job, that God killed Job's kids? Or do we learn there's another actor in there that, that took their lives and that God is creating space for um, boundaries for, the, for Satan to do what he's going to do? So extreme number one is everything God causes everything. If it happened, it's God's will. To feel sad means you are, you know, even sadness might be heretical because that means you in some ways disagree how God ordained things to be. Option two, we will, you know, its most common name is deism. So it believes that God created the world, set things in motion, but he's out there functionally watching our lives and the stories unfold like one watches a hit Netflix show or series, that he's not directly involved or engaged in the world, but he's passively watching what's happening. Now, the book of Job does not advocate for either of those views. It's somewhere in between. And what we'll see next week, when God finally shows up and, and speaks, is that that in-between space of reality where it's unclear why things happen the way that they do and that we're called not to understand why those things happened, but to anticipate God's goodness and, and, and proclaim his goodness, even amidst suffering, is, that's coming up next week. But I just want to suggest there is a whole lot of real estate between God controls everything and God controls nothing. And how that overlaps, how that in, interferes everything from where you parked your car this morning to whether or not you had a good hair day, like me. Good hair day. Yeah, yeah. Church, it's okay to say amen when you hear something you agree with. Um, it's, it's that there's an awful lot of space. And what, what you know, Paul tells us in Romans 8, God is working all things for good. So God is working. He's moving things for good. But Paul's not saying God causes all things to happen for the good he wants to get out of them. You know, it's, the way I think about it is he's not playing both sides of the chessboard. That there's, there's a back and forth, a responding, but God's going to win the game. Uh, how and why things happen, I don't know. I think, that's, I, I think the book of Job is saying, we just need one person at one time to say, I don't know. I don't know why this happened. I'm so sorry it happened to you, Job. Like the, the story's just begging for one person to say, I don't know why this happened. This doesn't make any sense. I'm really sorry for everything you've gone through. So first assumption is, oh, let me just say this too, because I was thinking about this. Think about prayer. If you are praying in a world where everything is already predetermined and decided by God, then you're praying in such a way that does not include any, any responsibility from you. It's all gonna happen one way or another. And so where, where's the need for personal responsibility? On the other hand, if God's deist and he's just 
Like, you know, this is, this is your guys' mess. You guys clean it up. You know, I don't know what the point of prayer is in that situation because it's on us anyway. In between, there's a lot of space for prayer because it calls out of us a sense of personal responsibility. I don't wash my hands in prayer and say, God, you take control of it. My job is to prayer, to post something on social media, then I'm out. That's all, that's all I have to do. Um, and, but it also is appealing to a God who does act, who is present, who engages um, in history in ways that are mysterious. There's a lot of space in prayer in between those two extremes. So point number one with Elihu, back to our boy. He, he, he is adamant everything happens because of God's direct decision. Point number two, God is just. I affirm this. I think this idea that God is just is something that I've staked a lot of my life on, frankly and honestly. So um, first point I have issue with. Second point, I don't. But if you hold in the one hand, everything happened is caused by God, and God is perfect, God is just, he can do no wrong, then the third conclusion is everything that happens is just. So if something bad happens to you, it's your fault. Because God caused it, and he must have caused it for good reason. Therefore, the victim is at fault in this situation. Just soak that up and read some of his logic that flows from there. But that's what he's operating out of. It's neat, tidy, logical. If number one and number two are true, by the way, this is the number one, um, well, I don't need to go down that road. This is what, this is, this, these, these assumptions are why a lot of people, when something bad happens, leave the faith. It's because if this happened, God caused it, which I've, all I've never been told is, is that's all that happens is what God wills, and this terrible thing happened to me, I don't want to have anything to do with that. So that is, there's a lot at stake here in, in, the, in this logic. Uh, this, this formula leaves no possibility for a righteous person suffering. That's, that's why Elihu's mad. Because Job has to confess this. He has to confess that this system is true. And if he's not, then I'm going to identify whatever that does to me, that cognitive dissonance. I'm going to, I'm going to call that self-righteous anger on God's behalf. And whatever happens, um, you know, honestly, being, he's, he's wrong about God. Being wrong about God, but thinking you're right, makes you really dangerous. Jesus understood this. Jesus experienced it firsthand. Uh, the, the word he gave it was self-righteousness. That this, this, I'm righteous, I've declared myself righteous, I'm bringing God into that declaration of righteousness, therefore, I stand in a position to judge what other people and why bad things happen to them. Um, group, and Rene Girard, one of the, I don't know, greatest thinkers of our time, died in 2015, so, um, and he was, I, don't, I always thought of him as a sociologist, but he, his work, his thinking has touched uh, history, it's touched theology, uh, there's uh, a lot of thinking, rethinking through the atonement, through the lens of Rene Girard and, and what he called uh, scapegoating, and just him noticing that in order for groups to function, they need a scapegoat. They need in order for the system to work for this group, it can't work for this other group over here. It could be benign as the, I was gonna say the Denver Broncos are the greatest football team, but I don't, I don't know that I can even make that case right now without seeming ridiculous. So um, let's, just, let's just go with, why do Dodger fans hate Giant fans so much? 
You know, that's scapegoating. That's, that's part of the mechanism in a, in a rather benign way. But it's, it's also why women were born, born, for, were born for being witches. It's why um, African-American men were lynched. It's why the, there's so much, uh, or the, the Jewish people through history, the Japanese people, the Korean people, the Muslims, the, the Democrats, the Magas, you know, you just go through it. Every group defines itself in opposition to another group. And what Gerard said is, why is that? Why do groups create scape, scapegoats? Why is it with um, our, our foreign policy, all wars, class wars, our political divide, our economic systems, they all create gaps. And the gaps that they create become scapegoats for people, blaming them for the evil uh, and brokenness in our time. Uh, he, he's, he calls this, he calls scapegoating the satanic principle. It's the principle that is the source of all kinds of evil, and, and I'm not familiar enough with him to say whether or not he says all evil that we do to one another is part of the scapegoating mechanism, um, but it's certainly a great amount of it. So I want you, through the lens of Elihu's formula, God causes all things, God is just, therefore people get what they deserve. Also, Rene Girard, saying, take note of scapegoating, how these systems create victims that are scapegoated, and all this, this, the collective fear and shame and sin are put on these other groups. And listen to Elihu's words that we finally get to hear from him. So, starting in Job 34, verse 5. So first he starts by quoting Job. Job says, I am innocent, but God denies me justice. Although I am right, I'm considered a liar. Although I'm guiltless, an arrow inflicts an incurable wound. So he's summarizing Job's position here. He's saying, Job, what you're saying to us is that you're not getting this because you deserve it, that you are, um, that God is denying you justice, that, that you're right, but we're saying you're lying because this evil's happened, so we're saying you must have some unrepentant sin, something happening that's causing this. So he's summarizing Job's position. And then he's making some comments, verse seven. Is there anyone like Job? Who drinks scorn like water? So if we picture Elihu as, like, as I comically portrayed him earlier, I think it's more important to, to think of Job, okay? Job, shaved head, covered in sores, scratching those sores, in torn clothing as a sign of, repent, uh, of grief uh, and mourning, suffering like you've never seen anyone suffer in your life. So it's important to remember, Elihu's not just in some classroom spouting off a theory. He's talking to someone who is suffering profoundly. So he's saying, is there anyone like Job who drinks scorn like water? He keeps company with evildoers. He associates with wicked, with the wicked. For he says, there's no profit in trying to please God. So again, is this true of Job? Is Job somebody that is... Uh, keeping company with evildoers and associating with the wicked, do we get the sense that Job was like, you know what? Following God's rules in the marketplace and treating people ethically is not financially profitable. Therefore, I choose profit. I choose greed. No, what are we told from the very beginning of Job? Job is a righteous man. We're told from the beginning, you're going to want to scapegoat Job. You're going to want to blame him because you have a system you're trying to protect. But he's innocent. 
There's something else going on here. But Job is innocent. So what does Elihu do? He makes stuff up. He says, my system demands that these things must be true. Therefore, I'm going to say them over you with no curiosity, no empathy, no compassion, as if they must be true, and I know they're true because you're suffering. Then he says, so listen to me, you men of understanding. Can you hear the sarcasm? Far be it from God to do evil, for the Almighty to do wrong. So that is point number one. Everything that happens is caused by God, so obviously he can't be accounted for evil. He repays everyone for what they have done. He brings on them what their conduct deserves. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Who appointed him over the earth? Who put him in charge of the whole world? If it were his intention, this part's true. If it were intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all humanity would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. So you can see the formula at work. He is saying, point number one, God's in control. Evil's happening to you. Evil's befallen you. It's from God's hand. Point two, God is just. So everything like, Job, are you going to say that God's not just in, in, in your suffering? Point three, therefore, you, you're getting what you deserve, and you just need to confess it as he grows angrier and angrier and angrier. He makes things up about him, that he's associating with the wicked. We know none of this is true, but his system only works with scapegoats, with those who suffer because they deserve it. Job is suffering, therefore, he must deserve it. And he gets angry and angrier. Perhaps, perhaps this is why God created scapegoats in the first place. That the reason it's called scapegoating is because through Moses, Israel was commanded to put all their sins, all their shame on a scapegoat and drive it out of town. That the first grouper to pick up on the scapegoating mechanism was the Jewish people in ancient times. And perhaps the idea of scapegoating is to say maybe if you put all your guilt and shame on this creature and send it out, you won't kill each other. And so many of the, uh, the commands, early in Scripture in particular, seem to be a way of saying like, hey, listen, I know there's going to come a time when you're going to be tempted to kill one of your children. So let me reinforce to Abraham once and for all, I will never ask for child sacrifice. I'll, I'll provide my own sacrifice. Isaac, come out. I got my own ram over here. That in each of these ways is a recognition of our bloodlust, the way that what is, what is inside of us comes out in violent ways, and creating these, these mechanisms to outsource those until ultimately, as what Rene Girard calls, Jesus comes. And he is the scapegoat to end scapegoating forever. That in placing all of our guilt and shame on him, putting him outside of the city just like we did with the scapegoat, only for Christ to return. And what did Christ return saying to us? Peace be with you. That's enough of Elihu. I've already started talking about Jesus. Let's end with Jesus, because I think I've had enough of, of Elihu. You know, Satan is only in chapter one, but I think his voice is embodied in Elihu. I think the accuser, the one who accuses Job of not being righteous, of doing wrong, Elihu embodies that voice and proclaims it over him. So I, I don't want to end with Satan having the last word, so let's, let's talk about Jesus. Um, you know, <clears throat> when you, when I pictured these words being spoken to Job in his suffering, and thought, you know, Job just needed somebody to sit with him. Say, I'm sorry, I don't understand, 
I'm not going to add to your suffering by blaming you. To just bear witness to his loss, to have empathy, to sit in solidarity, to, to just say, I don't understand. I don't know why this has happened, Job. So I just want to read a short passage of when Jesus was bearing witness to grief. And it's John 11, death of his friends, Lazarus. He goes, talks to Mary and Martha. Um, and then, verse 33, Jesus comes. Jesus saw her, Mary, weeping. The Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see, see how he loved him. I love that final verse. Jesus, people remarking about Jesus, look at how much Jesus loved Lazarus. And why? What, what did they see? What were they bearing witness to? Only his tears, his grief, his presence, his touching base with his, with his sisters, of looking around and seeing all the grief around him. And in that moment, channeling, tapping in, standing in solidarity with all that grief, all that brokenness, and weeping and grieving. That Elihu blames, Job's friends maintain a, an emotional distance from him, also blaming him, but, but not entering in Jesus enters in the, into the grief and weeps with him. Gerard said, Jesus is the scapegoat to end scapegoating. I want to, I want to, I want to read this, this short thing he wrote before we go to the table. Christ is the only man to overcome the barrier erected by Satan. He dies in order to avoid participating in the systems of scapegoats, which is to say the satanic principle. After his resurrection, a bridge that did not exist before established between God and the world Christ gets a foothold in the world through his own death, and Christ destroys all of Satan's ramparts. His death, therefore, converts satanic disorder into order and opens up a new path on which human beings may now travel. In other words, God resumes his place in the world, not because he has violated our freedom or violated Satan's freedom, but because Christ has resisted and triumphed over Satan's obstacles. So may you find comfort, knowing that God entered into our broken world to suffer, to die, and to conquer death once and for all. May you find comfort not in the explanation of why you're suffering or why bad things happen, but instead may you find comfort in the presence of Christ who sees your suffering and joins in it with such intensity that people say, look, how much Jesus loves that person. He suffered so that one day he may end suffering once and for all. He may wipe away every tear from our eye and lead us into a new promised land, a place free of suffering, of tears, of grief, a space of unending love. And since we're not there yet, may you come to the table in anticipation of that day. May you take the bread and, and the cup, for it is a bridge that did not exist before, that Christ himself has established for us, that leads us to find victory even in suffering, courage, even joy amidst suffering, for his victory is already our victory. We can just hold on a little longer.
Let's pray. Father, we confess that we have used formulas to understand why bad things happen. Lord, may we learn to embrace the mystery that is life, the mystery of why bad things sometimes happen, the mysteries, even deeper mysteries, of grace and mercy. I pray that especially for those who come heavy-hearted, hurt, burned, abused. May they find you as those who grieve the loss of Lazarus in your grief and your tears, ultimately saying to us, I am the resurrection and the life. All who believe in me, death will not have the final word. Until that day, we come to the table to ground ourselves in the good news yet again to go out into a world offering hope that can only come from you. May we live that hope in Christ's name. Amen. Come to the table.